0: You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now, on to the show. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. This is a true crime podcast. Each week I explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some cases are solved, but some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Aaron Fleming. My boyfriend loves to go camping, and this really baffles me because he grew up in London. And as for me, I grew up in the countryside in West Virginia, and I absolutely hate camping. I'd much rather be at home watching TV And whenever he brings up camping, my mind always goes directly to the story I'm going to discuss this week. In today's paper, you see the teenage girl from down the street, camping in Oregon, at the far point of a trip across the country, together with another girl her age. They suffered and survived a random evil. That's a poem from The Explanation of America by poet laureate Robert Pinsky. He was writing about two college roommates, who in 1977 were on a cross-country bicycling trip. They stopped for the night camp in Klein Falls State Park in Oregon. But that night would forever change their lives. Their tent was run over by a pickup truck, and then the inhabitant got out and hacked at them with an axe. It would take many years for one of those girls to deal with her demons. This is the story of Terry Jens. The year was 1977, and Terry Jens was 19, and her friend, Ephra Goldman, was 20. Both were good friends, undergraduates at Yale University, and it was the summer between their junior and sophomore year. They thought the perfect way to spend the summer would be to ride the Bike Centennial America Bicycle Trail. That event started in 1976, and it was a series of bike tours that crossed the U.S., and it was in celebration of the Bicentennial of the Declaration of Independence. And I remember being a kid around this time, the Bicentennial was a huge thing. So if you remember all the flags that were flown and the pride in America that was displayed after 9-11, then multiply that and you get the feeling around the Bicentennial. This bike route would go across 10 states, 22 national forests, two national parks and 112 counties. It's a distance of about 4,250 miles or 6,840 kilometers. The trail itself was the first bicycle touring route across the United States and it went from Astoria, Oregon to Yorktown, Virginia and it involved mostly off the beaten track roads or two-lane highways. So it would definitely be a beautiful, scenic way to see the country. The friends started out in Willamette Valley in Oregon, and Terry remembers feeling a sense of adventure and invincibility that you feel in your youth. She said, I had a sense that anything was possible, and you just go out and make it happen. But she admits now that they were both pretty naive. After a long day of writing and seven days into the trip, the two consulted their guidebook for a place to spend the night, and it suggested Klein Falls State Park in Oregon. That's right outside of Redmond. But when they got there, they discovered it was a picnic area and not an overnight spot. So then they had a debate about what to do. Avra wanted to move on, but Terry said they should just stop there for the night and camp. Terry won the argument, and so they set up their pup tent. But even though it was a very beautiful area, it was surrounded by trees that extend to the river's edge, the two felt really spooked out, almost a feeling of being watched. They shrugged off their apprehensions, had some dinner, and they went to bed. They pitched their tent between two picnic tables. And then the quiet of the night was broken around 1130 by loud noise and lights cutting through the darkness. Terry woke up to a truck on top of her body. She thought it was probably a drunken group of teens, she said. I first thought it was preposterous to wake up under a truck, and I know there were kids cruising the park road, and I would assume they'd been drinking, so what if somebody accidentally went off the curb and over our tent? She was right somebody did. They drove over a curb, down a dirt slope and between the picnic tables, only it wasn't a group of drunken teens. Terry heard her friend scream, leave us alone. She then heard a blow, then six more. She knew this wasn't an accident. Somebody had purposely driven over them and was attacking her friend. Next, there was just silence. Terry opened her eyes and looked up to see a figure above her. It was a lean, neat torso with a shirt tucked neatly into the jeans. He was, as she said, a meticulously dressed cowboy, straddling me on each side. I could see the boots, the pants leg, the shirt meticulously tucked into his pants, but his head disappeared in darkness. She wouldn't get a good look at his face, and she could only see that he was holding an axe or a hatchet. He brought it down slowly, almost in slow motion. And at one point, she caught the blade with both hands as he angled it right above her heart. Later, she would discover it seemed small because it was actually a Boy Scout's axe. And he wasn't just being slow when attacking her. He was aiming as if her body were a chopping block. Terry pled with the man to please leave them alone. Take anything he wanted and leave. Surprisingly, he withdrew the blade. He stepped over his bo- her body, and he got into the truck and he squealed away. Terry woke from unconsciousness, and she remembers feeling the blood as a rush of warmth, and her life was ebbing away. But she said a voice inside her said, I'm too young to die. So with that, she wailed herself to get up, and she crawled to her friend. She put her hand under her head to comfort her, but her hand went through her friend's skull directly into her brain. The magnitude of the situation finally hit her. She would have to get them help or they would both die. I'm Casey and I'm Samantha and we're the hosts of true crime storytime a podcast for all things true crime we will be bringing you fortnightly episodes covering everything from murder and mysteries disappearances theft and fraud abductions and kidnappings and more importantly trying to take a lesson away from each case because every story has a message so she fumbled through the flattened but now bloody tent to try to find her contact case. Only her right arm wasn't working. This is because the assailant hacked her forearm so severely that he cut through to the bone. I remember very distinctly when I first heard this story, thinking how badass this girl was. She's gravely injured and she's trying to put in her contact lens. Terry wedged her right elbow on the ground for support. She scooped out the disc on her sticky tip of her right index finger, and she used the blood dripping from her hair to put it into her eye. She wiped the blood away, and then she rushed into action. So she searched around the tent until she found her yellow flashlight. So she ran to the bikes that they were in on, and she tried to undo the lock, but that was more impossible than trying to put it in the contact lens. Her arms were not working at all. If she couldn't undo this lock, then she surely could not ride the bike for help. So instead, she stumbled on foot to a nearby road. Luckily around that time, driving through the park after a lover's quarrel were teenagers, Bill Penhollow and his girlfriend, Darlene Boo Isaac. And they remember seeing a flashlight waving through the air for help. And that's when they saw Terry, covered in blood and screaming for help. She was so bloody that blood dripped from the ends of her hair. Terry led them to her wounded friend. The teenage couple thought at first that Terry's roommate was dead, but then she moaned and they knew that she was still alive. They picked her up and carried her to, and placed her into the truck. And then Isaac remembers Terry being very insistent that they load up the camping gear and the bikes into the truck. She said, I don't really know how she functioned that night. I really don't. But she was giving commands like she was a lieutenant in the army. And then that's when they saw headlights. Terrified, the three watched very silently. And they knew this had to be the guy that did it. So was he back to finish the job? Luckily, the car only stopped for a moment and then took off, leaving them to take the girls to the hospital. The nurses at the hospital were alerted that two women had been axed. Terry was in extraordinary pain from the attack. She suffered head injuries, a broken right leg, two broken arms, a shattered collarbone, and broken ribs. To quote her, When the truck rolled over my body, my right upper arm broke and the flesh was shredded by tire treads. My right lung collapsed. My right collarbone fractured and overlapped. The right side of my ribcage was crushed, and the lowest ribs cracked in half. The rain of blows from the hatchet left two-inch gashes all over my scalp, a broken nose and a chip, in the skull over my left eye. One of the bones in my left forearm was sliced through, and the fleshy part of my left palm was slashed, and my little finger was broken. This is an insane amount of injuries, and to say that she was in massive amount of pain is just an understatement. Her roommate also had very serious head injuries, and so serious that she actually lost part of her eyesight and any memory of this horrendous event, and Terry felt a lot of guilt, and she was the one who fought for them to stay in the park overnight. Her friend wanted to leave. One person left with a very permanent impression was Kathy Devlin, who was an operating room technician at the time. She remembers being in the operating room as a very defining moment in her career. She was young herself, only 23, and she'd never seen anything done so horrible to anyone on purpose. To her, it was just pure evil. She said, Terry was a viable living testament to what happened. She gave us the text by which we could work. We didn't know what really happened. It was all over the news, but we were in the operating room, while other people were just awakening to the news. Watching the surgeons work so hard that night with such focus sculpted the way that she wanted to be in the future with her patients. Everyone was moved by the experience that night. Police searched the crime scene, and they were able to get tire tracks. There was even a rumor that they recovered an ax from the river marked with the initials DD. Terry just assumed the police would take care of things. She needed to focus on her recovery. Later on, she realized the police were waiting on tips and help from the community. And when they didn't get that help, the case went cold. But that recovery wasn't very easy. After her physical injuries healed, she found her emotional ones were still very raw. By this time, she was living in New York in her early 20s, and the events of the night really changed her. She felt afraid of everything, from random attacks to earthquakes. She would go from feeling very overreactive, then to numb and deadened inside. She said it felt like a hampering paralysis. Then in 1992 she decided to do something about this. She returned to Oregon, but this time with a video camera and a notepad. First, she went over the police files at the Oregon State Police. She would go over every detail, every page. Astonished, Terry found out that the statute of limitations had expired in 1980. So even if she found her attacker, he couldn't be prosecuted. And that's when her anger swelled. For years, she tried not to think about this man. and Now she really wanted to know who he was. I watched a really interesting documentary on Terry's return to Oregon on PBS. She talks about how all the sights and sounds brought the night back. She was able to find the spot where she was attacked immediately. She went and lay on the ground because she felt a part of her had been left behind. And then after that, she just got up and walked away. And that was enough to help her go on and try to solve the mystery. The police initially had one suspect, a guy named Bud Godwin. He was a convicted child murderer who used the skull of a five-year-old as a candle holder. But to Terry, he didn't fit the memory of her attacker. However, one man did. In fact, the whole town seemed to think he was the one who did it. Terry wrote a book called Strange Piece of Paradise in 1997. And in the book, she gives her attacker a pseudonym of Dick Duran. She didn't want to use his real name so as not to glamorize him. And even the 2020 episode I watched about the case wouldn't name him. But after the book came out, the press figured out his true identity and didn't show the same courtesy. So I'm too going to just use his real name, which was Dick Dam. And at the time of the attack, he was 17. He was the right age, the height, and he had the right looks. But he always denied involvement. And that's despite admitting to never letting a day go by when he didn't think about this. Kind of bizarre for an innocent man to do. Hey, Megan. Yeah, Did you know that the author of The Scarlet Letter had to shovel poop for a living? No. But do you know that the author of The Handmaid's Tale helped make long-distance sex toys? Who do you think she tested this on? Of course I knew about it. Fair enough. You know all these things and more. Like the difference between Moby Dick and Mocha Dick. If you listen to our show, Oh No Lit Class, a podcast where comedy meets literature and things get nerdy, weird, and maybe even a little bit sexy... It's all on Ono Lit Class. Dead authors, fresh takes, and the epilogues you never knew you needed. Listen now at onolitclass.com. Terry talked to many people in the community, and one of those people was Dick's girlfriend at the time of the attack, a lady named Jeannie Fish Fraley. During their relationship, he was very physically and emotionally abusive to her. She said of him, He could turn from this really nice, yes ma'am, thank you ma'am, to Satan in his eyes. I mean, it was just like two different people, night and day. 24 hours after the attack, Jeannie remembers him showing up at a nearby park where she was. He repeatedly hit and kicked her. She was so frightened that she jumped into a nearby pond and swam to get away from him. She heard him say, I'm going to kill you, bitch. She managed to get away with the help of her parents. They went to the police to report the incident. But since she and Dick were both minors, the judge said to just forget it. But Jeannie couldn't. A couple of things stuck out in her mind. That night she remembered Dick's toolbox where he kept an axe, and this was missing from his truck bed. And there were those tire tracks. Jeannie went to the scene of the crime when she saw the tire tracks, she recognized them as Dick's. She knew he was the attacker. She said, without a shadow of a doubt, I knew that. Oddly, when Terry searched for the records of Jeannie's attack, they were missing. At this time, Dick's father was the head of Redmond Auction Yard, and many in the community wondered if it was pushed under the rug due to Who his father standing in the community? Terry pursued the case for years. A local guy named Pat Daly also suspect suspected Dick Dam of the attack, and he had hired him for work several times. In 1995, he arranged a meeting with him at a local restaurant, but this meeting was really arranged so that Terry could see the face of her attacker during the attack you got to remember she never got a good look at his face and seeing him in the restaurant she said although he was handsome he looked mean radiantly mean his outfit was stylish like that of the cowboy who attacked her many years ago and then this 2020 interview the guy asked harry why she didn't confront her attacker she said she didn't want to give him a chance to apologize Excuse what he did, whatever he was going to say. She didn't want to give him that power. And the interviewer then asks her if she could have Dick Dam right there in front of her. What would she want to ask him? Would she want to ask him why? And she gives such a great answer. There's no why for an evil act. It goes beyond rational thinking. It comes from another place. And she's absolutely right, you can't always rationalize away why someone commits such a heinous crime. Now, as she said, sometimes people are just pure evil. State Trooper Marlon Hind reopened the case in 1995. Hind did vital work with the bulk of the investigation. He conducted two polygraphs with Dick. The first one failed due to drugs in his system. And the second one, he also flat out failed. The examiner said, It is this examiner's opinion that he's not being truthful in his responses to those relative questions. Those questions being, did he attack Terry and her friend that night? So even though polygraphs can be called into question, Marlon Hine feels strongly that he was being deceptive while being questioned on that test. Dick Dam has compiled a very significant police record over the years. He has violations for driving under the influence, violating a restraining order, and carrying a weapon. Terry was able to talk to his ex-wife, and she too reported years of emotional and physical abuse. He even killed her son's beloved cat right in front of him on Christmas Day. Even after getting divorced, she's still afraid of him. So, during Terry's quest for answers, along with the help of Pat Daly and Marlon Hine, she found great comfort and help in Bob and Dee Dee Coons. They too have a very sad story. So, in 1980, Bob and Dee Dee Coons joined the Portland chapter of Parents of Murdered Children, and then they helped to create the Crime Victims United. And that's an advocacy group. They give advice and comfort to victims and they try to make a better justice system. Their involvement started with the murder of their own daughter, Valerie McDonald. Valerie graduated from San Francisco Art Institute with a filmmaking degree in 1978. She was an aspiring filmmaker, actress, but to make ends meet a waitress. She wanted to stay in California to work on her career, so she moved to Tower Apartments in June of 1980. However, the apartments would soon get new management, and this would prove deadly for her future. The new manager was 35-year-old Philip Thompson, and this guy had a very long rap sheet, assault with a deadly weapon, forgery, receiving stolen goods, And in addition to those crimes, he had two rape charges. On June 18th, 1971, he raped and killed 21-year-old mother, Betty Cloer, shooting her three times in the head. For this crime, he wasn't caught until 2003, and that's when his DNA matched a cold case. Police think he may have had up to 8 to 10 more victims. He was a very dangerous guy. Formerly a CIA covert operative back in the 70s and 80s. Just not somebody you would want to mess with. And to help with the apartment building, Philip Thompson hired some friends he met at San Quentin. That was 26-year-old John Gordon Abbott, and he was hired as the assistant manager. He had recently been released on work for low. He also hired 23-year-old Michael John Hennessy, who was on parole for burglary. Valerie was very afraid of these men, mentioning to a friend that she saw them with large bowls of cocaine one time. On November 9th 1980, Valerie was packing up her apartment, finally getting out, and a couple of girlfriends were helping her. And this is when Michael Hennessy stopped by. Although she was very afraid of Philip Thompson and some of the other friends, Michael seemed all right. He was handsome and friendly, so Valerie didn't mind him too much. While talking, he offered her a part in an upcoming movie starring Dustin Hoffman, and this was be- to be produced by 80s powerhouse producer Dino De Laurentis. The part was for a pretty blonde victim that was being pursued by a serial killer, and that was to be played by Hoffman. Valerie's friends thought the offer sounded bogus, but Michael offered to pay $200 up front with more to come. Today, that would be the equivalent of around $7,000. Valerie really needed the money, especially with moving. So she left with him, never to be seen again. Instead of going to a film set, she was taken to an empty warehouse and held for 10 days. There, these men repeatedly raped her before killing her. The three men were actually working on a million-dollar bank heist for shipment of automatic weapons that they were going to deliver to a right-wing counterinsurgency group in El Salvador. So either she stumbled upon this plan and they murdered her, or they were just creeps who wanted to abuse and rape her. Her friends reported her missing, and they were told to wait 72 hours. And then it was 10 days before police assigned an investigator to the case. By this time, her parents flew in from Oregon. And the police told them that Valerie probably went off to Vegas. Eventually, an investigator started connecting the three felons to the disappearance. But by then, they had fled. Michael Hennessy and John Abbott were found about 800 miles away in British Columbia, where Abbott had gone to high school. A massive shootout ensued and Hennessy was killed on the spot. John Abbott was captured and charged with attempted murder. In their possession was Valerie's ID and a jacket she was wearing the day she disappeared. However, due to lack of evidence or body, the San Francisco Police Department could not make an arrest. I'm Don Wrinkle and everybody's got a podcast. And if you're gonna listen to one, In taste is the way to go. Because it's very greasy. This is Bill Lawyerson to tell you that In Poor Taste is the podcast you should listen to if you want to get sued. Don't think, Jim. Here to say, if you listen to In Poor Taste, I guess i will give you a Christmas handy. It's In Poor Taste. It's definitely not a comedy podcast. And it's definitely not educational. It is definitely Australian. Stop, Stop asking! asking. Hello, I'm a Giorgio Casadoro and this is my brother. Putiva. Come on down, import taste. We, we take him back and polish your jewels. That's us. South East, Pittsburgh. Born and raised. Listen to import taste on the Podsburg Network. www.podsburg.com slash for all of your edutainment podcast needs. If you guys said they will put it. The only solace that the family had was Abbott was sent to prison for his involvement in the shootout and Thompson was sent back to jail for an unrelated charge. Eventually, Thompson would be sent to prison on the mur- murder and rape charge of Betty clower but Bob and Dee Dee Coons were deeply dissatisfied with the whole justice system, so they founded Crime Victims United. They discovered that their own justice system in Oregon was also horribly flawed. Victims received no respect, and they deserved a better system. In 1986, they worked to pass the initiative Measure 10, and that would put victims' rights during criminal trials into state law. It also barred excluding crime victims from the courtroom during trial. It gave victims a role in the trial scheduling, sentencing, and parole. Then in 1994, they got behind Measure 11. This established mandatory minimum sentences for violent crimes, and required juveniles above 15 to be tried as adults. It created some of the longest minimum sentencing in the country. When Terry returned to the small community in Oregon, she never expected the help and comfort she got. And this crime just didn't happen to Terry and her friend. It happened to the whole town. They were angry and scared too. When she initially came back, she wanted to make a documentary. But after compiling all the information she obtained, she ended up writing a book. It's called Strange Piece of Paradise A Return to the American West to Investigate My Attempted Murder and to Serve the Riddle of Myself. The title was inspired by a passage in John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. To summarize that, Terry said America is a place where cruel things happen a place where your faith will be fired forever. Writing the book in 1997 served her in many ways. One main reason was to, as she said, shock people into sanity about what happens to women in society. Many people don't realize the abuse that women suffer. I think especially in this current climate where abusive men are finally being held accountable in a public manner It's even more important to hear stories like Terry's. Pat Daly, the man who hired Dan, remembers once challenging him to a fight. He didn't take the bait and he merely backed down. Daly said his abuse was only directed at men. Not men, only directed at women, but never men. Sadly, Terry and her friend Aver lost touch after the incident. Terry moved to New York and then to Los Angeles to be a screenwriter. They would hear of each other through various channels, but they never regained contact, even after the publication of the book. It was another reason Terry notes that she wrote the book. She wrote it because her friend wouldn't listen to the story. She never responded. However, after a reading at a bookstore, one of Aver's best friends approached Terry and she thanked her for writing the book and sharing the experience. Terry said that was huge for her to know that she was okay with the book being out there. I wish I could say that Dick Dam got what was coming to him, but he was never charged with anything to do with the crime. His good looks have gone. For most of his life, he relied on them to get with women, and then to get those women to take care of him. It was reported last that he was staying with a disabled man in town. Most reports say that he was last in jail refusing interviews. He had just gotten out of jail when Terry was doing a reading in Sisters, Oregon. They had police stationed right outside the store just in case he felt like getting any kind of vengeance. And luckily he never showed up. He'll most likely keep abusing and trying to get what he can out of people until he dies. Terry's book did really well and was critically praised. Many compared it to Truman Capote's true crime classic, In Cold Blood. Her story has inspired many to come forward with their own tales of survival at the hands of something or someone abusive. And then I want to give you some really astonishing facts that I found. One in three women have been victims of some form of physical abuse in their lifetime. One in five women in the United States has been raped in their lifetime. 19.3 million women have been stalked. In almost all countries with available data, the percentage of women who sought police help out of all the women who sought assistance was less than 10%. Let that sink in. Take a look at the women around you and put them in those statistics. It's a very rude awakening. Terry Jens was brave enough to come forward and tell this harrowing tale, and she's told it over and over. It's a very important work. It's vital that people know these tales. This is how we learn and change as a society. She survived. She's a very strong woman, and she made it. And to me, that's an inspiration. Any woman that has the guts to tell an awful thing that happened to them, whatever that thing might be, is an absolute hero in my book. That takes guts. I don't know that I could even be that brave. Terry Jens was able to triumph over the awful events in 1977 in Oregon. After having nearly every bone in her body broken and her spirit crushed, she was able to rise above it like a phoenix. This man forever changed a lot of people in that small town in Oregon, but they too rose above it. So if you want to learn more about Terry's story, definitely check out her book. It's still available in print, and it's in digital format. There was a very great 2020 episode a few years back, and the PBS documentary that I mentioned, and I highly recommend both. She's something to see on film, She's very strong, and she's intelligent, and she does not back down. She's truly a force to be reckoned with. And just a suggestion, listen to the women out there. It's hard to speak up when unspeakable things happen to us. So when we do speak up, just listen. With everything that's going on in the news right now with the Harvey Weinstein scandal, it's very disconcerting to read some opinions of people how they still don't believe what what some women are saying. They say things like, oh, why did they keep silent for so long? Why didn't they speak up sooner? Because it's absolutely terrifying to have someone laud power over you and to threaten you. And even when this atmosphere is one of mostly of acceptance, there's still a ton of people that say you're lying. And that's why women don't come forward. It takes one brave woman to break that barrier to tell her story. And then it makes it easier for others. But it's usually years past the event. So hopefully the one silver lining to come out of all of this is an awareness. This shit really happens. Women get harassed. Women get abused. That's an absolute reality. You talk to any woman you know, they have a story. Or sadly, they have stories. So listen and try not to judge. Just listen. So thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I'm proud I got to tell this badass lady story this week. Thanks for everyone that's reached out with suggestions for the future episodes. I really appreciate that. Give me your feedback on Instagram or the Facebook page. Find me on Twitter at BlondeRedrum. I really love hearing from everybody. So thanks so much for listening and catch you next week.